Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And thank you to everybody who's subscribing. Subscribing? Subscribing to the Patreon page. Uh, Patreon.com slash Willosophy. Uh, our aim was to get to $5,000 per month to put out two episodes per week. And at the moment we are hovering... In and out of that 5000 mark. It does depend if people uh, renew their subscriptions. So there's been a couple of days this month where we've been over 5000 and then hokey pokey style. We've gone back under 5000 but we're hovering around that mark. So uh, we might try to put out a, a second episode a couple of times this month. And if we can keep it above 5000 regularly each month, then we will go to two episodes per week. So let's see if we can keep it above 5000 for a month. But in the meantime... I'll put out a couple of second episodes uh, during the week over the next couple of weeks just as a bit of a celebration that at least we cracked the 5,000 even if we've uh, gone back under again at the time of recording this. Titus O'Reilly, he's a fascinating dude and uh, I really enjoyed this chat with him. If you don't know Titus, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy getting to know him. He has a brand new book called Cheat, the not-so-subtle art of conning your way to sporting glory, but... Um, if you're not a sports fan uh, and you don't know his comedy from the sports world, I just think you're going to be super interested in his general perspective of the world in this episode of Philosophy. So uh, make sure you go and check out all Titus's stuff, including his new book, Cheat, but also a bunch of other books that he's written previously, his Twitter feed, his social media stuff, his columns, all of which we speak about in this episode. Uh, thank you to everybody who watched Reputation Rehab. Uh, of course, we had uh, Zoe and Kirsten on the show a couple of weeks ago and uh, Reputation Rehab on the ABC. If you did not see it, you can catch it now on ABC iView. And of course, my show, Gruen, um, uh, thank you so much to uh, the amazing support we've had of that this year. Um, we've been the number one show on telly a couple of weeks out of the three. And I mentioned that because that all ends this week because we're up against the uh, rugby league state of origin and that always just smashes everything so uh, anyway it was good to be having good ratings while they lasted Uh, (laughs) uh, ruined by rugby league many have been and we will be this week but if you cannot watch it live the best way to watch Gruen is on ABC iView and of course if you're in another country and you have an expressive VPN then you could uh, watch it on ABC iView also so uh, check that out um, I don't have any shows to plug, not doing any shows, this is what I am doing, so if you want to support it, uh, patreon.com slash philosophy, and enjoy this episode today with Titus. And welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And uh, this is how the show starts. I ask the guest who they are. So who are you? Well, I'd say I'm a E-grade list celebrity sports satirist, if I'm talking myself up. E-grade. E so that's like, <laughs> I mean, E-grade is... A particular, who is Alice is in the E-grade? You should say, say your name, by the way. Not just an E-grade oh, celebrity. It's, it's, they, they, could be guessing, they could be guessing which E-grade celebrity is that I... Do, does he have Simon Deering hot dogs from Up Late with Hot Dogs <laughs> finally on the show for an in-depth interview? Oh, that, no, you, uh, it's Titus O'Reilly, but uh, God, getting hot dogs would be a scoop. 
I'd like to know. I've got some questions to ask hot dogs. If we, <laughs> if we end up doing year 15 of philosophy and I get down to, if I'm scraping the bottle of the hot dog barrel and I've got literally hot dogs on the show. But so, look, E-grade. Who else would you put in E-grade celebrity then, Titus O'Reilly? Uh, probably reality TV stars, contestants, things like that. <laughs> you know, basically. Uh, maybe some of uh, our wonderful news media commentators. So uh, that sort of thing. Okay, so tell me where Titus O'Reilly fits into the sports and entertainment landscape because I think what is particularly fascinating about the whole Titus world is it seems specifically its own world. It is not necessarily like anything else that is out there at the moment. Was there some sort of inspiration for that niche you identified that you would feel previous to you or was it something that you created yourself well the thing is what i do for anyone that hasn't heard of me and i get either the reaction of uh, you know i i love you you're great or i've never heard of you it's it's never really much (laughs) in between between. (laughs) yeah and there's a there's a lot more of i haven't heard of you but Look, I, like all interesting things, I, I didn't plan anything. I, I do sports satire, basically, I would describe it, or that's how others describe it. But really, I I had a day job, and about 10 years ago, I started a blog and a Twitter account, and I thought, like, you know, and I was relatively late in life and had a full career, so I didn't, I wasn't even, it was just something fun to do. Because like a lot of people out there who, you know, like yourself's gone into comedy, but I think a lot of people could transition into more creative things it's just you finish school maybe go to uni or something or go into a career and if the career works out Mm. you you kind of get swept away by that because it's going well people are offering you jobs and money and you think this is good but i got to the point where i suddenly realized i haven't done any creative writing since high school you know that was the last time and i used to write a lot and i liked it but i was writing speeches for people like ceos and things like that about how it was wonderful we'd got rid of 2,000 people because we'd captured value for shareholders and just really talking it up, you know, really fun things in life. And just I mean, that is creative writing, though. I mean, you oh, really are having to be very creative about that messaging. Well, well this is the thing because cause I – and I worked in sort of crisis and issues management. So, you know, so that was sort of – so when I started to write about sport – I really came at it as, as a mad fan, but also with this knowledge of how all these powerful people actually, because I used to work for a lot of them, or not just in sport, but in corporate world, I'd been in the meetings where it was worked out what to be said. So you, you kind of look through, I, I just see sport in a slightly different way. Like probably my favourite one, and there was a Carlton player called Josh Bootsma, who was sending uh, nude Snapchat pictures to underage women and that was the big story and he got sacked for it and everyone looked at that and thought wow that's an interesting story what i thought was amazing is someone would have had to have sat and briefed mick malthouse who was then the coach about what was snapchat and the fact that people send nude pictures and someone would have had to sat with this old 67 year old very crusty coach and I could just imagine Mick sitting there going, they do what now? What, why would you do that? What's wrong with asking her to the dance? <laughs> what's, what's wrong with taking a Polaroid of your dick 
like we did in my day. <laughs> yeah. You, well, that get, was a th- <laughs> you get an old man with one of those cameras with a curtain that pulls over his head <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a little light that he holds up and it makes a little explosion when it takes the picture and then yeah. you mail that to your darling. Well, isn't that the wonderful thing? You know, they used to... There was no the, the fact it wasn't instantaneous. So you're in the mood, you take the picture, but then you're no longer in the mood. <laughs> and so the at the moment the delivery that both the act of taking the picture and the delivery is instantaneous almost. But in, in the ye old olden days, you'd have to go to the chemist the next day. <laughs> Hope the chemist didn't look too closely at the photos. And then mail it to them or something, you know. So there's just not that moment where we're in that hot headspace of doing silly things. But that was sort of the thing with sport. I just sport's a wonderful thing in Australia of where a lot of our power networks are and everything. So I just thought this is. I just started writing what I thought, and then it started to slowly take off to the point where about three four years ago I could just literally quit my day job. Yeah, so that's interesting to me. The transition. From, like you said, you have this successful career, you're doing this thing as a creative outlet, really, you know, a blog, you know, sending some tweets, creating this, you know, world that is separate to the world that you are living every day of your life. And then suddenly that thing, like you said, later on in your life, after you've had a full life doing something else, this thing eventually becomes so successful that it is the thing. What's that transition like? Well, it is strange. I mean, I I think a lot about it used to be before the internet, if you look at every creative outlet, there's the creation itself, which artists or creators do, whether it's comedy or sculpture, it doesn't really matter. And then there's the distribution, the marketing and promotion, all that sort of the technical recording of it if you need a microphone and all that. So you've got all these different things that used to be prohibitively expensive. So if you wanted to do anything creative, if you wanted to be a journalist or a columnist, if you wanted to be on radio, you know what it was like. You had to go and become a cadet. You had to start literally at the bottom, work your way up, hope someone liked you internally more than the quality of your stuff. It was, all right, you're all right, we'll give you a, you know, we'll let you write something or do something. And there was none of that feedback or you're having your own audience. And the internet's just taken that all away. You, you know, suddenly you can create effectively a radio show for cents on the dollar. The, the distribution and marketing and promotion costs have just completely bottomed out. And uh, same even with writing is pretty, why it's, why it's pretty much free now is anything I write goes on the net and anyone in any country can read it within minutes or seconds. So this has changed it all. So when I started to do that, I started to just build up my own audience and I found I really enjoyed it. It was just fun. Before that, I thought I was be like the gym, you know, I'd, I'd start all enthused and two weeks later <laughs> I'd be going, yeah, I haven't, I haven't written something for a few days and but I'd be telling people about it but not actually doing it. There's so much of, you know, everyone, but I found my thing and I found that I liked doing it. And, and then it just grew. I suddenly started finding people were sharing it and commenting it, which creates its own momentum creatively. I mean, I'm a big believer that I'm sure there are some creative types that like to be up separate from the public and couldn't literally couldn't care less if the people in the audience like it or not. But I think a lot of us are much more, it's a back and forth 
it, it really is. So when you're actually getting people going, can't wait for your next column or I enjoyed that, it, it spurs you on to do more. It's a bit like if you do stand-up. You do a few gigs where you get no laughs. It's a bit harder to keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> if that goes on long enough, you might actually say, some comedians don't, but some comedians, you know... You, and so there is this thing of, and the audience will also, because you get that instant feedback on social media now, often bad but often good, you get this response instantaneously if people like it and what works and what actually is a thing. And that's where the difference between doing something as a hobby and doing it as a job creatively is vastly different, as you would know, because when you're doing it as a job, it can be Sunday night, I'm exhausted. I've got to write 2,000 words recapping the AFL round. I might have broken up with someone or have a hangover or be sick. It doesn't matter. You have to be funny now. And that's the difference between someone who writes a blog and every six months they put up a piece when they're inspired. It's just this grind of I've mentioned them before, but they seem relevant to this conversation. Roy and HG, um, they... Mm because of the subject matter that they are celebrating and satirising, and it feels to me that Titus is in that world, you know, both satirising and celebrating the world in which he lives, right? Is This mm. is... Uh, I remember they, uh, Greg was telling me one day that... Uh, Greg Pickhaver was telling me that they had someone come up to him and it was quite a common thing. They would have people come up to them and say, you know, I've got a couple of my mates who are as funny talking about rugby league as you guys are. And Greg would always say, I'm sure that's true. Our only ability is the capacity to be funny about it when the red light comes on. And that's the difference between doing it as a hobby and doing it as a profession is that you need to be able to produce it when the red light comes on. So talk to me about that a little bit more. I mean, you'd had experience doing that. You clearly, when the CEO needs to make a speech, there is a deadline for that. It has to be done when the red light comes on. But when it's then your own world, when something's gone from, I will tweet about this thing or write a blog about this thing when I feel passionate about it, when I have an idea, through to, I now have this space where somebody is demanding me to fill this space. I need to have an idea for that space. How does that change things? Well, I think it changes it in that you... <laughs> You learn if you actually want to do this. You learn if you're actually you're self-driven. It's all that stuff about in life. I've done a thousand things in life that I'm not being self-driven. You know, the gym, for example. I can go for about a couple of weeks, but then I just start not going. And before you know it, you, you haven't done it. And the difference when you're self-driven and you've got to find that thing for you that you feel that passionately about... I was obsessed. I think you have to be a little bit obsessed. I was like always writing three to four articles a week. I worked out one year because I had to put all this, all my stuff I'd written in a in a word document. Um, it was I'd written four hundred thousand words in one year, and that's not including tweets. And a book is eighty five thousand words. So I'd you know sort of written three and a bit books or you know more more four and a bit books in one single year so that you, you find yourself absolutely driven and just pushing through all those moments you become obsessed and that's the hardest bit you find then if you're good enough or if you're going to be someone that just does it occasionally and I and I get people say to me I'd like to start a blog like yours and I say well do it like there's no there's no one stopping you literally no one th there's, do it. <laughs> there's literally no and I and they say oh I'm really worried I've got to get the brand right I've got to get and I say no no one will listen to you at the start no one will care it's a bit like starting stand-up you do an open mic and you die in front of five people and you think 
that's my career over. No, it's not. No one's seen you. No one will remember it the next day. You know, it, there's actually a safety in the fact that no one will care. I used to, when I put my first few pieces out, I'd say to my friends or family, have you read it? And they'd say, oh, yeah, it was really good. And then I'd go on to Google. Then I'd go into Google Analytics and no one had been on the site at all. I didn't read, so, it. I didn't read it on your site. I yeah. So they, don't, they, so they won't even pay attention. So, you know, you've got to find that bit of if you love it, you'll do it. You will do it despite it being hard, terrible. You will just it'll, – it'll be something. And you, I've sort of learnt now looking back at a lot of things that wasn't my thing. Like I sort of saw myself as a failure that I tried guitar or tried whatever and it didn't work. As long as you give it a bit of a go, it doesn't always translate that, you know, that that lack of passion is a problem. There's very few people that get to be really good at anything, I think, who aren't a bit obsessed to the point of being annoying. You know, like I'd be sitting there just always thinking of tweets I've probably calmed down a little bit to what I was, but I was just, it was nonstop in my own head. I couldn't stop myself even if I wanted to. So I like this idea of building an audience. It's something that when I'm talking to young comedians, and you've touched on it a few times really here, which is people mm. want to jump five steps ahead, you know, whereas the best bit of advice I ever saw about stand up, and it comes up a lot on this podcast, and I don't think it was originally his thought even, uh, but. I read it first in Stuart Lee's book about stand-up and he talked about the idea of 2,000 super fans and the idea behind that being that if you can convince 2,000 people to spend $50 a year on what you make, you know, and that's just like a, you know, downloading a CD or like, you know, um, uh, you know, buying a T-shirt, you know, buying your book, those sort of things. If you can get them to spend 50 bucks a year, that's $100,000 a year. And for everybody, that's a pretty good base salary for the career that you're doing. So instead of thinking about 20,000 people or 200,000 people or 2 million people or 20 million people, just think about 2,000 people. And it feels a little like you did that. It feels like you built your audience very gradually, but it was off the back of people being super passionate about what it is that you did. Yeah, well, I mean, there wasn't a thought process at first. So, so the first three or four years, it was building to okay numbers. So, you know, it was sort of, you know, I might have got up to sort of 100,000 followers on Twitter and various things. And I thought of it as this is a fun hobby. I've got my day job, but when other people go fishing or camping or they go bowling, whatever people do for a hobby... How bad am I at naming hobbies? Um, <laughs> first, first two, you were like, I, I, fishing, camping, boating, yeah. boating, camping, and fishing. Okay, yeah. I just, I want to, I want to, I want to say bushwalking. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, you know, but I, I, I sort of thought this is fine. This will be. I didn't think of myself as like whether it was a comedian or anything. I thought I'm a guy with a mildly very mildly popular blog and it's kind of fun I have some interaction with people and but it started to really uptick and then I started to get people contact me saying will you do radio will you do all this and and that's when I started to think okay well I'll start doing some of those things but the thing that did start to gel sort of five years in when I started to actually be able to make some money out of it and I got things like a book deal and I got started doing some live shows and I started doing various things is I started to realize that I could potentially build this up but I also realized because a lot of my stuff is not very politically it's politically correct it's 
against the powerful often. I'm often criticising in the AFL world people who are very powerful who have gone out of their way, a few of them, to stop me getting jobs. I started to think, you need to have your own audience because I don't think you're going to be sort of hired as a columnist or breakfast show host ever, no matter how big you get because of that. And I got told directly that by a few people. So I started, and I also would look at the media now and where it's at and think even the big stars could get sacked any day, you know, like no media, the, the media is, you know, as we've seen, it's in trouble financially. So to control your own destiny and have your own audience, to me, rather than thinking about jumping several steps and be like, oh, well, I got to do live big shows of my own quicker than someone who had have traditionally come through another channel, I thought of it more like, you know, that this was a chance if I cared for the audience and built it up to a size, that was my day job. And I, didn't, and I could say no to media outlets when they wanted me to write stupid stuff or... So occasionally I've had them say, I oh, don't put that in if I've done something for someone and I've just gone, don't take the column then, just don't take it because I can. I'll say, I'll just go put up on my site. I'll, I'll do fine with that. Thank you very much. So it does give you that power thing. But I think some people want to skip a whole bunch of the processes of becoming a good comedian and comedy doesn't care whether you want to skip <laughs> it at all. So... It's, it's, it's like you did mention you did yeah, mention live shows so this to me so there is a safety in the written work you know that not everything that is written mm. down needs to you know have a laugh come at the end of it you can just sit at home and imagine the laugh or the wry smile or just the nod of acknowledgement of yeah. the, you know the cleverness behind the thought you know that's but you suddenly <laughs> you did transition to then doing live shows now was that something that you yeah like just instinctively decided that you were going to do? Was it something that would was always a bit of ambition? Like where did the live shows come from? Well, one of the things I started to think is once you're doing anything creative and you've sort of pulled it off in one form, and I think this is a good thing even though it's not necessarily always going to be possible, is you start to think, one, if you want to, I think, make this career out of this, you have to be able to do more than one thing. So – if I just did books, I, I wouldn't make enough money to do this. I'd have to have a day job still. And the money's not that important to me. It's the not having to go ever to a meeting again. That's my main thing <laughs> coming out of the corporate world. If I could just avoid going to a culture meeting where the worst people in the world talk about how important culture is, you know, that's what drives me every day. So I started to think of, well, can I do radio? Can I do TV? Can I? And if I can branch out into other things, it does provide you i think the modern the media is not paying enough money anymore for you just to be a writer or just to be radio i don't think very easily and i think it's only going to get unless you're huge you know unless you're jk rowling you can get away with just writing books but i think you know i sort of knew that and that's been good for me because for instance with no live shows at the moment and and less tv and radio the writing i've been able to really fall back on but at other times it's the live gigs that have me through it got me through so I, I started to think I could make the transition but I started to know that it wasn't going to be easy I'd I'd always loved stand-up I'd read lots about it I know of a few stand-ups who have sort of come on the scene over one or two gigs and just being almost instantly amazing but you know Jerry Seinfeld had that reputation Bob Newhart had barely performed live when he recorded those few those first albums that went on to win 
all the Grammys and everything in his first year. So there are occasional comedians that just can be that good. I don't think there's many. You know, the, you know the, the craft, the stage time is actually kind of necessary. So I thought I'll dip my foot in the toe in the water and, and you know, I got asked to do a few corporate footy gigs at, at actual AFL president's functions. And they weren't bad because I'd done a lot of public speaking before. So not necessarily comedy, but I'd done a lot of public speaking. And I think not that at least, if you want to do comedy and you've never done any public speaking, it's like tr- trying to drive a car and you haven't ever driven a car before, <laughs> let alone well. Do you know what I mean? It's like if you've done a lot of public speaking and know what it's like to be nervous and know that, all right, if I can be authoritative and I can – the funny bit's a whole other thing, but you can at least those basic – public speaking bits weren't worrying me as much. Now, the joke still worried me because <laughs> um, I knew that was harder. But I did a few of them and they went okay. Like, you know, I'd put a lot of work into the jokes and the writing and made sure I had a lot of stuff there. And it's a bit different doing a corporate function. It's more like a, a speech. It's more like a humorous speech than a stand-up set. But finally I said to someone, said, well, we'd love you to come and do it here down at the Yarraville. Um, and they said, yeah. So they said, oh, all right, we'll put the tickets on sale. And I thought, this will be fine because it will sell, you know, I'll be getting up for 20 people and I might bomb it. Anyway, it sold out 500 people <laughs> bought it. So that was my first hour of stand-up. Headlining, full hour and a bit. Never done it before. So, you know, that, that would be a license for, you know, a train wreck. But at the same time, I'm getting up in front of a group of people who come are coming to see me. They've self-selected that type of humour. They're on my side. They want it to be good. Like, that doesn't mean that I couldn't have done a good show. And, and I was the show went fine. It was actually quite good. But it, I'm not saying it was as good as someone seasoned would be. But, it, you know, had a, I'd really worked hard. Like, I basically memorised almost a speech. I wasn't winging it or... You know, and so, and I knew a lot of the people in the room were all in a footy. They were all a fan of my type of humour. So I had a lot of goodwill. So it wasn't like getting up in front of 20 people at a pub in the middle of nowhere who's never heard of you. Like, I know that was a different experience. And since then, I've done more of that. But the thing I've learned from doing a lot on stage that you can't fast track is the performing side of it. You can have all the jokes, you can have all the confidence, you can have... But to actually turn material on the page into really good stand-up, you've, you know, the great ones can do different voices or they can pretend to do a conversation between two people. That takes a lot of getting out of your shell. So, you know, now that I've been doing it for sort of five years, I've sort of... I noticed the difference in how that's gotten. But it, it, it was a it was a completely different way of coming into the world of stand-up to what... 10 years ago, you just couldn't have even done that even if you'd wanted to. Um, and there's massive advantages to it and there's massive disadvantages to it too because I think if a few of them had gone badly, I really would have burnt out pretty quickly. <laughs> no one would have ever come again. You, what you have done though, which is I find very interesting, and I have some insight to, into this but not an entire insight. So my friend and Charlie and I have a – AFL-adjacent football podcast is what we call mm. it uh, because we, we start with AFL, but it really just goes into flights of fancy about ridiculous things 
vaguely based on the sport of AFL. But what it does do when you have to put out a podcast a week is make something that you used to just enjoy as a hobby, watching sport, consuming sport, partly into your job. And that actually has the potential to change the relationship you have as a consumer of the sport. Did your relationship with an enjoyer and a consumer of sport change through the success? Well, I'm a Melbourne supporter, so any AFL player fans would know I wouldn't call myself an enjoyer of sport. <laughs> <laughs> sort of a, a long-term victim. But, uh, no, it does change it. Like, I, I, I mean, one, it's a job, so... It's like if you if you get into anything you want, you're you're suddenly going to be doing a lot of things that you now have to do them. So you have to watch games, you have to be across. And there's some days where I'm just like, I, I you know I don't really care if so and so's done this, or I can't believe I've got to come up with another Carlton joke. You know, it's sort of I think we've mined this area, guys, but I've got to. So so there is that constraint on you all the time. I always had weird things where I'd have people either get annoyed with me, you know, various AFL people, and I'd get others that were fans and would contact me and they'd try and give me jokes or tell me <laughs> things that were happening behind the scenes and go, you should reveal so-and-so's having an affair. And I'm like, that's not really – I'm not a news breaker. So, you know, and then I get started getting invited to functions and, you know, and being fated or – not fated, more trying to – like win me over mm-hmm. so I wouldn't say mean things about right. them. A bit sort of courted. like, you know. Yeah, courted and stuff and that was weird. And um, yeah, so there's all weird things like that happening where people would start to actually, you know, reach out to you or contact you or you'd find yourself just in these weird moments where, you know, you're sitting there chatting to all these ex-football players that were your heroes or something and they all want to, you know, talk to you. So it has been very weird. But I also kind of, at times I think I want to do comedy that's not f- AFL or sports related. But at the same time, I also think there's there's a, something not there's something that pushes you harder if you've got constraints in what you do. Mm-hmm. You know that I'm a big believer that artists, given all their all the freedom in the world, you know, artists complain. So I want to do whatever I I want. People get out of my way, and I have all the money and all the time, and just do whatever. And if you do, you end up with like Oasis's "Be Here Now." It just becomes a sprawling, wasteful. Thing I think kind of having some framework and some actual limitations on what you can get away with or what forces you to work harder to come up with the interesting ways to work within that framework. And, yeah, I think that's really important. I think that actually is kind of... So I've written reviews where if it's a bad game once, I just wrote, put the recipe to an old fashioned. <laughs> Because it was a terrible game, and I just so I just said this is a terrible game. Here's a great recipe for an old fashioned, and I got more people responding, going, "That's the best review of that game I've ever read." Because no one cared about it, you know. So you got to come up with these left field ways if you're in that constraint of writing about the same topic all the time. I think that can, the value of constraint is something that is understated. I I was lucky enough one time in Edinburgh at the festival over there to go to a late night event that a guy called Paul Provenza, who's an American comedian, very interested in the history of American comedy, made a movie called The Aristocrats about a, uh, Mm. you know, famous comedy joke. And uh, he's made a whole bunch of like comedy related movies, very much into the mythology around comedy. And he was doing this show called The Green Room, which was basically just a, 
late night conversation with comedians about their craft. And this particular night, it was uh, Matt Stone, Trey Parker from South Park. Who were, So I'm, we're in this little cave in Edinburgh, 100 people, you know, one o'clock in the morning. And they've just brought clips of what they thought bits of South Park were going to be until the censors got involved. And one of my most memorable moments was when they explained, it's one of their most famous jokes, which of course was Tom Cruise not being able to get out of the the closet. You know, Tom Cruise is in the closet, he can't get out of the closet, <laughs> right? And they said it started with actually quite a very cheap and hacky um, you know, Tom Cruise's gay joke that they were told they couldn't do by the censors. And then they were like, well, what if we have Tom Cruise coming out of a closet? And they're like, no, you can't even, you know, have Tom Cruise coming out of a closet. You can't do that. And it eventually led to the famous scene where he just act literally, he's in a closet and he can't get out of the closet, which was at mm. the end of the day, a much more creative and hilarious way to execute that joke than what their original eye would have, idea would have been. Yeah. Well, I think that happens all the time. I mean, Brian Eno, when he used to produce, you know, there's that run where he was doing all of David Bowie's albums and all this. He famously had a bunch of cards that he would pull out and they all had random things like it would be like swap the drummer and the guitarist. So they would have to swap instruments. So he'd have the world's best session player on drums, world best, and he would make them swap. And they might have not played the other instrument before and then he'd say, Bowie, you know, sing off key or sing, you know, he'd... He'd do all this stuff to purposely mess with their heads and get them to or write a song in this time or this key or he, he would do it to make them and they'd all go nuts. And But Bowie said later on, all our best creative ideas came out of those bloody cards. I hated them, but they absolutely threw you into having to work really hard because, I mean, one of the famous, famous jazz concerts ever was a guy who got called out to this. He, he was doing a gig in Europe. He turns up. The piano's waterlogged and damaged. It hasn't been tuned for ages and half the register doesn't work. Half the keys in the, I think, the upper register don't work. But this woman, or she was a girl, she was about 16, had organised this big jazz pianist to come out, begged him in tears to please play it. So they got it tuned. He played the whole thing and it became one of the biggest jazz albums because he had to play it with his really hitting the keys hard because it didn't to travel in the concert hall. And he couldn't use certain parts of the register. He was an improviser. So he had to like improvise all the way around the normal keys. And he said, I was so locked in on the moment because the piano was not a great piano that it, it pushed me to really do more creative and interesting and weirder stuff and focus and be part of the in the moment more than I've ever been at any concert then or since. And it was all because he did had this massive constraint of not a proper piano where if he'd had a perfect grand piano given everything he wanted he wouldn't have done it and so i think that happens all the time with comedy is it's it's the political correctness debate i love so you know, well tell me what your where you find yourself on the political correctness debate because this is a conversation that comes up a bit on this podcast and I, i'd love to know as someone who self-confessed you say you dip your toes into some politically incorrect waters but it's not like you're kevin bloody wilson or rodney rude or you know titus is you know doing like sam newman's old material it's that, yeah. That's not what you mean by that. So what, what is your perspective on that debate? No, I mean, I mean politically incorrect by going after right. sort of more the powerful people, but not that I'm a big believer in you can't kick down or you can't kick up. I think that's a sim oversimplification too. But look, a lot of – I always – whenever t someone talks about political correctness gone mad or they're furious about it, I think of 
There's a great Simpsons episode where Principal Skinner says to Miss Krabappel, they're telling they have that little affair or you know romance, and she says what she likes about him, and he says, and I've always appreciated your ability to be personally insulted by broad social trends. <laughs> Which is to me just one of the great lines because yeah, people are furious like, oh, it's all this, you know, transgender thing or this gay agenda or racism and all this. And I'm like, it's not aimed at you. It's a broad social and you can be annoyed about it or you can be happy with it. It actually, does, the world does not care. It's... And the fact you're taking it personally is kind of interesting because these are broad social trends beyond our own control. You'll never be able to – and they'll happen to us. I mean, I always think, what are my grandkids going to say about me? Like, it's very easy for people sort of who are, you know, of a certain generation, younger generations, even middle-aged generations, to say, Grandma, racist, can't believe it. Because we didn't grow up – we grew up when that was starting to become a bit more of a – a conversation and you're aware of it you know but 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 it, you but we so we didn't grow up in that just racism was normal stage so we we see it as not normal uh, some people don't adjust but most of us do what's the things that we're going to think are just normal even now that our grandkids will think are just weird and i can see my grandkids turn to each other and go you know grandpa still eats steak Still eats steak, kills animals, basically. Like I could see that being one that just is one that I think of as completely normal. I mean, I think our use of ableist language, and when I say our, I mean capital O, our, because I am certainly a person that for decades had no problem calling people like crazy or, you know, oh, that's, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so so part of our language that you never would have even considered – that saying those things would, but I think, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you can see that starting to change at the moment. People are going to look back and go, I just cannot believe the way that people just used ableist language so willingly <laughs> and grandpa, so commonly. Grandpa called me crazy. <laughs> grandpa called me a nutbag. Can you believe that, man? Yeah. He used the N-word, nutbag. <laughs> yeah, he said, he said nutbag and he, he knows I'm having a tough time at the moment. And I mean, I... I it was Are You of, Okay Day. He called me a nutbag yeah. on Are You Okay Day. And because I, I, I think of this all the time about... Being a bloke, like I grew up with, uh, you know, an idea of manhood that was very, we don't talk, we don't cry, you know, we don't talk about our feelings, we don't, and I've got enough of that still in me, as much as I'd like to, I'm smart enough or have thought about it enough to know there's a healthier, younger generation coming through that are better than me, but sometimes when I hear them talk, I still have this ingrained thing of going yeah just toughen up and shut up which i know is terrible (laughs) advice and not healthy for me but i i'm caught between trying to follow what went ahead of me which i thought was the proper way to be a man and then aware of there's this better way but i can't I'm kind of taught you know i'm kind of as a middle-aged guy i'm torn between the two a little bit where I try occasionally to open up or be a bit more and I can do it, but it still feels a bit like I've still got that old world a bit in me enough. So I look at people who are like a guy who's 80 and I go, well, you got no hope 
you know, there's no way you're going to be able to make this adjustment if me, at, you know, if I'm just 40, you know, like I'm going to be able to make that adjustment. Well, because, I mean, a lot of the things that we now look back on is, I mean, here's a, a good example from the world of AFL is the focus now on brain injury acquired from concussion, right? Whereas in the mm. old days, like literally famously, you know, yeah, injuries above the neck don't count. If you get hit in the head on a, yeah, on a VFL ground, you would just back out. That's fine. It's fine if you're like yeah, yeah. getting knocked out on the field, you'll be back in the final quarter to play out the rest of the game. Whereas obviously now we realise that you can have lifelong ramifications to your brain health by like severe clashes to the head. And we've had to lives through a massive adjustment, not just of the rules of the game, but our entire thinking around the idea of what it meant to be courageous. We used to celebrate those people who would come back from like a major concussion back onto the ground. We'd be like, look at this hero. He went back onto the ground with a concussion. You're like, no, no, no. He should have been in hospital and not playing sport for six weeks. And what about his family? He's not going to remember who they are in 10 years. Yeah. Well, worse than that, we used to celebrate the person that did the hitting. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't just the person that was, we'd say, oh, he's a tough player, which meant he belted people when they weren't looking behind the play. And now people still say, oh, it's gone soft. And you go, really? Because yeah. if I went out on an AFL field now, I've been up close to them as you have when they play. The sound of those guys hitting each other. I mean, if you're not conditioned for AFL, it would kill you. Like, they are amazing still. But they're just not belting someone behind the play when they're not looking. But people say, oh, it's gone soft. And you go, really? How's it gone soft? You know, what you can't just hit someone when they're not looking now behind the play. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, but th- all those things sort of, you know, I just find it very funny about the political correctness debate where people are getting really upset about this with comedy. And I'm like, you can still say most things. It's, de- I mean, this is the thing I find with Twitter. I've spent a lot of time on Twitter. It's big, was my big first thing that I sort of broke on or got big on. There's this thing that every conversation has to have an like every time someone says something, there has to be a conclusion in a debate. So say I tweet, I hate the colour blue, and you tweet me back and say, I think blue's one of the best colours, if not the best. <laughs> it's then expected, and I'm upset that you said you hated it. It's then expected that I then come back and go, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. I don't mind blue in some circumstance or something, like it's, or I apologise. Every debate, rather than I said what I said, you got every right to say what you said, and we're done. Mm. That's it. The, the conversation is over. So someone will say to me, I don't think your joke was funny. And I go, okay, you've, I got to say my joke and you got to tell me it's not funny. There doesn't need to be that always – that next step in the conversation where we get it to an ending of we both agree. Like, that's not what freedom of speech is. It's not what, you know, so all this stuff of like, well, you said this and I thought it was offensive. Well, sometimes it might have been offensive. That's absolutely correct. But other times it's like, okay, you're offended and I said it and there's no more, there's not a part, there's not part three to this conversation. Was that, this is it, we're done. I mean, you've come from the corporate world, so I'm interested in your perspective on this because I've always had a bit of a pet theory that some of that is because uh, of, of that corporate culture that needed to respond to every complaint. You know, there was a point that we went to where, mm. you know, your opinion is important to us, hold on after the call, give us your opinion on how this service was, rate this service at the end. And we were constantly mm. being told that our feedback to everything was not only valuable, but that it was almost 
compulsory and then we seem to have taken that over to every aspect of our life like the amount of people who uh, recently jim gaffigan you'd know who jim gaffigan is right mm-hmm. the brilliant american comedian yeah famously pretty apolitical but he recently broke that to you know campaign pretty heavily against trump and the destruction of trump in america and there was a lot of people just saying to him well this is like you know bad for your career you're going to lose audience members and and his response was very much like okay you know like i'm not i'm not running for politics i'm making yeah. something and you can watch it and enjoy it and laugh of it if you want to if you don't want to but i i'm not a big company that has the responsibility to respond to every complaint no and you can't keep everyone happy and even it's fake when companies do it because they pretend to try and sort everything out but they really don't care i mean <laughs> i've worked at every major asx top I've worked for or around every ASX in my previous top 20 company, all of them. And, you know, that I said it earlier, like at work, the person that talks most about culture is the worst person because they will be the person that is the worst to work with. But they'll say stuff like, we should all collaborate. And you go, well, yeah, normal people who are nice do instantly. We don't act like it's a great insight that being nice to people or you know it's not an insight that's not an insight that's just what people who are good do so you know there's this thing where trying to companies will say oh we're so sorry if we're offended someone or that you know they're not i would prefer sometimes you know where they just said i thought it was funny okay you can now, I mean, there's always levels of this. If someone's been out and out racist, and I've been in the middle of things like the Adam Goods event where you just have people who are just being purely racist and things like that. But, I mean, also getting into arguments with them doesn't re- really help you either. They just d- dig into their position too. You know, I was up at Sydney the week he sat out um, doing a gig for them, and it was just palpable, the anger in that. But the people who were commenting on one side, at one point we had... In that one week, we had Shane Warne, Eddie Maguire, Sam Newman, a couple others like that, all telling us what it was like to be Indigenous <laughs> and how Adam should feel. <laughs> Which, if I, if you and I sat down and wrote that as satire, people go, this is far-fetched. So what is that disconnection between the corporate world and the rest of the world as somebody who's been in the middle of it and look i've seen some of it as well up close and Mm. when when i speak about these things it's often from a position of knowing how real power actually works and being delusioned uh, disillusioned Mm. by the fact of actually seeing how you know decisions get made and who those decisions get made by um what's your like uh take on that world having lived in it well one that it's very simple. I mean, institutions, companies, governments, all these things are actually way easier to understand than people realise. So a bank is there to make money and, and nothing else. A government is there to win votes. Now, they might have an agenda and all that, but for them, they're there to, politicians are there to win votes. Because if you're in opposition, people don't get... If you're in opposition, you don't have a job. Holding the other side accountable is nominally your job but you don't actually have anything you don't have to be at anything you don't have to like unless you drive your work capacity you've got no job so they want to stay out of that so you know all these different companies and groups if you just look at what they are set up to do that's what they will do 
now they will justify it. They will put the spin on it. They will even convince. I've been in meetings where you know they're convincing themselves that what they're doing is actually really, you know, well we don't like to you know slug pensioners extra, but we, you know it'd be terrible for them if we went under. So it's about sustainability, <laughs> and that, that's what they do behind the scenes. So you can imagine what they say. And I mean the other thing about power is power is the ability to do what people don't want you to do. It's not the ability to do stuff. It's real power is when everyone hates you or they're going to hate it and you can do it anyway. That's what I think real power is. It's not about being popular or I'm well-liked so I can do it. I mean, that's just people want to go along with you because you're well-liked like, or they think you've got a good idea. That's not power. You're not making someone do what they don't want to do. You're just convincing them it's a good idea and they're happy. Or they were already happy, you know. So if I said, oh, I've decided I'm going to give all my money away, people would go, great. You know, it's not like a powerful move. (laughs) So that's what power is. Power is staying in your position. So we've got various people in sport who have said racist and horrible things. They they stay in their position, not because even when the – just be, even when the populace is against them or people who they just might not be good at their job, but they've got power. And power, power is being able to do what you what others don't want you to do and you can still do it and still get away with it. And that's what corporations operate on. I mean, they're just they're not hard to figure out when you actually work it out. Pe- people kind of spend all this time going, why would they do that? Because all the incentives in the world are set up a certain way. And I think we as humans are far more susceptible to incentives than we think we are. We all like to think we're really in charge of what we do and say. But the I've been in all these environments. I've watched people be journalists and cross over to a corporate comms role and they almost overnight lose. They go, yeah, this media is terrible, you know. And I've seen people go the other way. I've seen people go from journalism into politics and, and suddenly they're saying, hey, you know, they've they got a different view. or So, you know, you... We're all way more susceptible. You go to a certain culture or organisation to start thinking this is normal. This is what it is. And that's what they all do. They all convince themselves that what they're doing. And they're very out of touch. I had a conversation with one executive once who said to me, he, he was complaining about how his executive pay was going to be in the, all the media the next day on, and on tens of millions of dollars. And said to me quite how I was quite distressed by it. And said first said how, how do we how do we stop me being the focus of this? To which I said, why don't you pay me a bit more than you, and then I'll be the one who's got <laughs> the names up in lights, <laughs> which they didn't go for. But then they said, in all seriousness, and this person owned over over ten million dollars. He said, but you got to understand, relatively, this isn't that much money to what others are, are getting, and you realise. They're just hanging out with all people who are the the same as them, and they look at the guy over at the next company who you do realize they have that that bubble like that you know very quickly becomes the world, and they're just massively out of touch, you know, but at the end of it, they're there to make money that there isn't anything else to do. I ask people on this podcast if they have a personal philosophy, and mm. uh, I want to ask you that before we get i mean we're nearly 50 minutes in and I haven't asked it yet. And so uh, (laughs) it might be instructive that if I ask it at some stage. So do you have a personal philosophy? I do. This is the only thing I've ever come up with by myself that I actually have 
think it's got any wisdom in it, and that's don't have faith in yourself. Have faith in how bad other people are. <laughs> I've, I've talked about this a lot on this podcast, but uh, when I first started doing stand-up in Melbourne, uh, it was the SB in St Kilda on a Sunday afternoon, and... I went three weeks in a row and they would have about eight or 10 new brand new comedians on. And the thing mm. that motivated me wasn't that I thought I would be the best. The thing that motivated me was each week there was at least three people I thought I would be better than. I was just oh, like, yeah. you know what? As long as I can be fourth worst, I reckon I can give this a go. Yeah, that's right. I mean, where, where I learned this is in, you know, in the, in the corporate world, I'd, um, I remember I was managing a, I had this woman I was managing. She was in her early twenties, and she said to me one day, "I don't, you know." I said, "You're very good if you keep working on this, and you know, she needed a bit more experience and various things." But I said, "If you keep going, you're you're going to go really far in this." And and she said, oh, "I don't, I just don't know if I could." And I said, "Okay, forget you for a second because that's a bit egocentric. Have you looked at the idiots doing this job around the <laughs> town that we've met? Like, put yourself aside for a second. Like, I'm not saying you're the greatest person that's ever lived. Like, I'm just saying that the majority of people are yeah. rubbish. You're heaps better than Gary. Yeah, you're heaps better Gary than Gary. And you're yeah. miles ahead of Gary. Yeah, and you haven't sexually harassed anyone for weeks, so you're <laughs> ahead of him there too. So so it is that thing wherever I find myself going, oh, I'm not good or I'm this or I start to think, yeah, but really am I like or am I just – yeah, there's, there is kind of a self-centeredness to think it's all about you, even in a negative sense, to sort of like look around and go, well, that guy's got a whole TV show or that guy's got a, you know, and think, well, I, I think I can at least do that and not think instantly you have to come in as, you know, at the top. Like you say, if you can just be the near the, near the, near the middle or near the bottom but not that right at the bottom, you know, looking around at other people and realising – there's a lot of people in jobs who are not very good. <laughs> it's actually a massive – I love that. I think – it's why I'm a big fan of quotas on boards because people say to me, well, don't you think it should be on merit? You know, that's the argument I always get. And I say, well, unlike you, I've met all the top boards mm. and I can tell you that's – they're not there on merit, a lot of yeah. them. Yeah. No, I do think it should be on merit, but the system but, but, currently yeah, isn't on merit. So Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the real equality is when incompetent <laughs> women can get the jobs incompetent men can get. It's forget competent women because I think they will get there the more society opens up. But it's really when we get that balance. Yeah. Because I've got to – I kind of think that there's a, a rule with any workplace – say you take a group of 10 people in any workplace and it doesn't matter where it's the night film – crew at Coles or the board of BHP, you'll have one person on it that's kind of very clever, genius, works really well. You'll have another couple who are really good, honest workers. You'll have a couple that are sort of around the middle but are nice, you know, who do the job okay and are nice. You'll have another couple that are not very nice and quite hopeless and then you'll have one sociopath. And that <laughs> rule of group dynamics has in my career going from working night fill in a supermarket to, you know, the top boards, uh, into comedy, into everything, that almost holds across every group I've ever met. You keep thinking you're going to hit this group of people and they're all going to be amazing. Like, I am out of my league here. These are 
all smart people. But they never are. There's always a couple there that you're going, <laughs> you were friends with someone or something happened. Uh, okay. Australia's relationship with sport is something that obviously you're a good person to talk to about. What is, in your opinion, the role and the value and the place that sports holds in our society? Well, I mean, to understand why sport's so big in Australia, I mean, you go back to when uh, when – Britain started sending people out here um, and so you, you go back into Indigenous times and there was a lot of sport being played, although we've unfortunately either lost a lot of that detail or it's um, it's told to us by the records of the early um, sort of Britons that came out here. So you're sort of not sure how much of it's how factual or they're interpreting it. So there was the Indigenous culture long before, but really what in a nation sense of Australia – is it was the first thing we ever did where we beat England in cricket. It was the first time on we were a backwater, we was a small time before the gold rushes even. We had no artistic or science or anything on a world stage and we started to beat England in cricket. And so there was this, I mean, you get hundreds of thousands of people showing up in the sort of 1850s onwards to the MCG or the SCG, politicians taking the day off parliament if the test was on. Now they claim it's a junket and get paid for it. <laughs> and now they claim they're working at it, but they used to just shut down the... So so it was a big deal even then for the whole public because it was the first time we had a sense that we might be as good in something as the motherland. And I, I think that just had a massive, massive impact that, kept going as we continue to be good at sport and because we put a lot of the effort in too, it really became a big deal for us that this was one thing that, you know, we're this t- small country on the edges of the world, but boy, we're good at sport. We can match it with anyone in the world of sport. And it, it, at the Montreal Olympics in 76, where Australia really bombed, it was a front page, huge political um fallout Malcolm Fraser's government were in all sorts of trouble had to set up the Australian Institute of Sport and all this like money was yeah forget forget that's when forget putting money in the art we've been putting too much money in the arts and education let's let's rip it out and put it back into sport and they did they spent a fortune to turn it around and it it still affects us you're either dominated by sport and love it and follow it or you notice that you're not part of it and it's a bit like, I mean, in Australia, in Victoria, especially if, if you're not an AFL fan in Victoria, even nominally, I don't mean you actually have to be a fan, but you say, oh, I'm a Collingwood supporter or something passing. If you say, I don't like football, it is it must be similar to what it was like in, during the Spanish Inquisition saying, I don't believe in God. People will just instantly go, I don't know what to do about you. Like, you just... Do not fit into my worldview. You know, there's something how, deeply how wrong to you. How do I immediately evaluate you and have something like to talk about with you immediately? I, I, I mean, that idea that yes, it, we're like you know, we're a small country, you know, down the bottom of the world. If we're not top ten in the Olympics, we see it as a national, you know, failure, and we need to rejig everything. And yet, yeah. we have the sixty third best internet in the world. Yeah, and you know. Oh, that, imagine, that's a sort of, imagine if we could get maybe have a top 10 internet in the world, the difference that would make to Australians. Well, it's the same with maths and English and all the various yeah. 
OECD thing. We're, we're nowhere near as good at those things as we are at sport. Like it is, I, I both love sport and recognise it the absurdity of it. I mean, you're a big Bulldogs fan. Yeah, if I said to you, you and I are going to pick a random group of 20 blokes and depending on how they perform on the weekend against another group of 20 blokes, that's going to determine our mood for the week. (laughs) You'd say, like if we just picked 20 blokes going out on a Saturday night right? and we decided we're going to live vicariously on how good a Saturday night they have out and you're like, you know, imagine we talked about like on a Monday morning you and I like, Oh, Jono, wrong footwear, didn't even get on the yeah. park. Unbelievable, you know. Like, he's usually good for 20 pots, you know. And mate, people would like, say, you are mad. Gre- 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 second, mate, it was 9 o'clock and Greg was already on the Bundy and Cokes. Yeah. There was no way that he was going to see out the night. Yeah, I mean, and then <laughs> Jeff goes missing, in all, as always. <laughs> Just suddenly look around, he's not there. And then, you know... Oh, yeah, Jono's the best wingman we've got, but where was he, you know? <laughs> so, so like we, but that's what we do. We, we pick a group of 20-year-olds, on, you know, that are our team. None of, we, most of people don't know any of them. If you met them, you would have very little in common with them. They're, you know, they're 20-year-olds and you, you've got fully grown men. Just, I've seen captains of industry at AFL events cross the room to get a selfie with a 20-year-old player, and you just think, that's weird. Like, this is this is an odd world we live in in Australia. But it, it really does fit into our... Na- like all national myths, it, it, I mean, the, the ball-tampering scandal was... The reason that was so big is in cricket, ball-tampering is not a big deal. It's a week, usually one test suspension, and every country has been caught doing it. I'm not saying that to lessen what they did, um, but that that's basically, in a cricketing culture sense, ball tampering is kind of a low-level infraction that all the teams try and get away with. Occasionally they get caught. The Australian narrative is we get to be the best at sport because we live under the Aussie sun and we're bronzed Aussies and we're in the outback and we and there's something in our DNA and we're not like the pasty Brits and we're... You know, we have got something that makes us as a race of sports people better than everyone else, and we don't cheat. That's our belief. Now, there's like all national myths, like American exceptionalism, it doesn't stand up to a lot of scrutiny, but it does kind of define who we are. And so you had this the cricket culture game, which Cricket Australia tried to perpetuate, which is, it's not this big a deal. Like, it's silly, but, but then you had this Australian culture, which is, no, this goes against everything we believe we are. We, we are superior because we're superior in the sporting world. We are not superior because someone cheated. And I think that was the disconnect why Cricket Australia reacted so badly and why you had grown-ups ringing into talkback in tears when Sandpapergate happened, which once again, you had the Prime Minister come out and talk about it and ring the head of cricket, uh, the chairman of Cricket Australia because a 25-year-old rubbed some sandpaper on a leather ball. You would have thought we were in the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, I used to think 9-11 would be the biggest thing I ever lived through. Here we were with... So when you drill into these things, but that it means so much to us. We, we were that 
concerned that this had sort of destroyed the soul of the nation when really you go, yeah, it, it happens. It happens all the time, actually. Well, so that's interesting to me because I think that sport is important because we decide that it's important. But what this year, particularly as there's been a lot of debate around whether it was appropriate for sports to recommence because it's mostly in the entertainment sense sports that have been able to recommence, right? Mm. Like the, all the major sports around the world have found some way to go from not being able to play to going to be able to play, whether it be hub situations, bubble situations, no crowds, you know, increasing crowds in the Australian case as it has gone on and it's become more safe. But there has been a real repositioning in my mind or reminding in my mind. Some people have been really offended by the idea that sports got special exemptions, whereas I, in a way, it just reminded me that the reason that sport exists is it's meant to be a distraction for us. It's meant to be something that we can take our mind off other things. And I think that we had gone too far into the other direction of considering that it was actually important. It's important because we choose that it's important. So it's important that we don't want Steve, our cricketers to rub sandpaper on the ball because we decide as Australians that's what we think is important. But is it actually important in the grand scheme of the world that a kid made a mistake and rubbed some sandpaper on, like you said, a piece of leather? And yeah. it's not. It, it doesn't really matter. It well, matters only because we decide that it matters. Well, th this is the scary thing about life, though, when you think about it. And I agree with that about sport, but when you think about almost everything, I mean, Hubert, what matters is what we decide as a collective matters. I mean, there's no iron cast rule that we should have human rights. There's no, you know, there's no, you know, especially if you don't believe in a Lord above who's given us these hard and fast rules, I mean... Nature doesn't care about it. The laws of physics don't care about a lot of things, you know, like art. I mean, what's art? I mean, you know, to some people it's rubbish and other people it's the most meaningful thing. Like it's all because it's only important when other people collectively all or it touches you individually, but then it's got to kind of be this group thing, you know. It's And so it, you can get go down a rabbit hole realising basically very little is actually important. I mean, beyond being able to feed yourself and being relatively safe and having a house. I mean, the rest of it is all what we decide to give meaning to it. And and I think sport was, you know, one of the reasons it's been important to keep it going is remember in, when they were in prison, they've pulled cigarettes out of the prison and banned them mm -hmm. and there's been riots within five seconds because if you had a lockdown Victoria and not pumped AFL into their homes as <laughs> someone in lockdown... I genuinely think a lot of us would have been worse. It was the only distraction for so long this year. It, it, it was important to people. And it wasn't even a good season. It wasn't particularly great. But you just had these brief moments where there was something else. But then I'd add, what sport does, if you're not a sports fan, you don't understand it. And that's fine. Art might do it for you or, you know, lots of other things. But there is... a. In a time where community's fracturing, the amount of people through doing this, once I started getting into this, I can go to any pub and if people recognise me, they'll stop and have it. We'll have a long chat. I've met so many people through sport and footy who I can go and catch up with, every city I can go to now. It's all through, it's all through sport. It's all because we have this 
mad disease that we're interested in it and you can talk about it instantly and people can be annoyed about that but it's actually got a positive side if you actually enjoy it there's actually something about it i was a three-year-old's birthday party yesterday yeah and uh fair to say a three-year-old's birthday party not not set up for me i don't have any of my own children uh i am not a person who's taking their children to a three-year-old's birthday party so it's mostly you know couples or parents who have kids of their own they're related to this kid in some sort of way and then suddenly there's just like a few blokes in the corner and i don't know any of these men Mm. and i start talking to one of them about afl football because he knows i'm an afl football fan yeah and then suddenly it was like a siren's call as you saw men drift away from the conversations they were involved in that they didn't like over to this corner where we're all suddenly having this quite in-depth roundtable about the nature of afl well i I've never told this story to anyone before, as as this is the thing that happens all the time on this podcast. Finally, but, uh, we finally. got it. Here it is. Uh, so a few few years ago, I uh, I got I got divorced, but before that, we had to go. Oh, so as part of that process, we'd gone to marriage counselling for a long time and stuff. We'd tried, you know, really hard, and then we'd gone to finally to. It's, we didn't want to go to court. We weren't, you know that sort of place. But I had to, we had to go to a counsellor who was there to work out basic details in a way that, you know, and you do that and then, you, you know, so, so we're trying everything to make it as, which we did, as, as painless as that process can be. So I go in with this, uh, with this person who's the, um, uh, it's not, it's sort of arbitration, you know, but so... And it's this woman and she's like, well, I can make recommendations to the court, but if you all agree, it's fine and all this sort of stuff. So it's a, sort of a serious thing. And so I start talking to this woman and she says, so what do you do? And I say, oh, well, I, you know, I write footy stuff. And she goes, oh, yeah, I've heard if you've seen you on the front bar. And I was, oh, yeah, great. So she says, do you think James Heard did it? <laughs> And I, I'm there in this headspace of this is the worst time of my life and, I'm, you know, it's a horrible thing to do. And she's like, do you think he did it though? Like, I don't think he did it, but I'm not sure. And some people do. And what do you think? What have you heard? And I said, well, you know, well, you know, I think. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, I, I'm trying to like come across as a reasonable, nice guy and, you know, and. So I'm trying to like, well, if I start saying like, I think James Heard is as guilty as sin, and my, is she gonna, is she a stand by Heard? Like I, so I'm thinking this could have severe, and I just had this while I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, God, if this goes pear shaped and I end up in court, am I gonna have to be going? Well, the, you know, my lawyer saying, well, to the judge, well, I put it to you that the uh, the uh, marriage counsel was a uh, stand by Heard it. <laughs> And therefore, their opinion is compromised. Like it was just the most Melbourne. So anyway, we talked about it. It was an hour session. We ended up talking about twenty minutes on James Heard and the bomb drug scandal. And I'm just sitting there going, "In no other city in the world, I imagine, does this happen? Where <laughs> this is my, this is what I'm talking about." Uh, so you've written a book on cheating. It's called yes. Cheat, right? Yeah. Um. So you've mentioned two very prominent, you know. Uh, cheating scandals in Australia, which was the Essendon drug scandal and then obviously Sandpaper Gate. What is it that 
makes someone cheat, do you think? Do people set out to cheat or do people uh, edge closer and closer to a line and then find themselves on the wrong side of the line? Well, I mean, for, for one, for cheating to occur, if you think about it, for life to exist, you know, you need water, an energy source like the sun, you need carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. Roughly those things are like, they're the conditions for life. If they're there, there's a chance life will occur. Won't say it will, but there's a chance. With cheating, it's far simpler. You need two things for cheating to occur. People and something to win. That's all you need. <laughs> it doesn't matter if there's money, if there's, you know, any not like prestige. or It, 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 it doesn't matter. People just will cheat no matter what. And I think a big part of it is we're social animals and there's a pecking order and we would like to be up towards the top and winning or being perceived as good at something or smart is a strong way of getting there. And, I mean, I used to know this guy. We'd go around to his house and I was dating a girl and it was a friend of hers and we'd go around to his house and they just mad for board games after, you know, everyone knows these this couple. Mm-hmm. And we'd play Trivial Pursuit and he'd say, it was just so obvious he'd memorised all the cards. <laughs> So, like, you know, we'd, he, after dinner, I'd be drunk. You know, I'd be off my head because it's a dinner party and, you know. And he'd say, let's play Trivial Pursuit. And then, you know, someone would say, like, you know, who was Ross Perot's running mate uh, in 1992 president election? And he'd go, oh, I don't know why this has occurred to me, but was it Vice Admiral James Bond Stockton? <laughs> I don't know why I'm thinking that. Why? <laughs> And and then they'd go, it's right. And you go, oh, my God, it's right. And I'd just be like, of course it's right because you're worse than Stalin, you know, which is another answer he always got right. You know, he just – and but he was really just human. He just wanted to be seen as smart and – yeah, so it was actually kind of sad in a way. And, and then you get to sport and you've got these people that are there under enormous pressure. There's incentives to cheat at times. Um, the rewards are, are, are exponentially large to cheat. In, in some sports, cheating just actually makes the most logical sense. It's amazing anyone doesn't cheat. I'm not saying that's a moral <laughs> question. But, you know, I mean, the Tour de France is set up for cheating. It's, it's the first winner of the Tour de France knocked his opponent off his bike and then got off and in front of the cr- crowd jumped up and down on the wheel till it smashed. That was the first Tour de France winner. <laughs> so people say Lance Armstrong's this anomaly. Lance Armstrong mm. is not an anomaly at all in the world of sport. He is as boring as they come in the Tour de France. But people think of him as like this. If you said who's the greatest sports cheat, they'd say Lance Armstrong. But, you know, it's it's not actually even true, you know. <laughs> it's the year before Lance begun his seven... Tour de France wins. They had the Festina affair, which about twelve teams all got arrested for drugs and sneaking them in. And Lance Armstrong was working for an American TV network as a commentator. Watch this all unfold. End up in court. They all got charged. The very next year, he goes out and wins his first cheated one. So they constantly read them as a not a morality play, but as a how-to guide. And it just happens over and over, no matter what. Mate, uh, I want to ask you a question that I ask everybody on this podcast, which is, what happens when we die, do you think? 
Nothing. You know what it was like before you were born? Just that. So that's the most common answer. Like most people that I have on the show probably believe some version of we were nothing before and we'll go back to being nothing again. So then the more complicated question that follows that is, if that is true, and we've touched on Mm. a little about the idea that we create things that we think are meaningful, but why is life what it is? If we are just an evolutionary accident in the corner of the universe and, you know, we have just decided to be what we are, then why why is there music and art and sport and these things? Why do they exist? Where do they come from if we just are nothing and go back to being nothing? Oh, I mean, there's probably some really, I think, unfortunately, some boring ke- chemical brain uh and social processes that they just trigger, you know. That's I, 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 I'm about as bad as they can get on just thinking. We like to think there's all this. I mean, one I think when people say, "What's the purpose of life?" and all that, you know, I'm like, "It's a why, why does the universe exist even then? Why do?" And I'm like, "Why does it have to? Anything have to have a reason?" It's a very human. We're, we're pattern recognizers. We look for patterns and we try and determine a. You know, and the the great minds who are far smarter than me have spent centuries delving into this. They haven't gotten anywhere. They haven't gotten anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like they've gone, hey, we we thought about it a lot harder than you and we've actually figured what this is about. You know, and I I just think there isn't a point. And I think music, uh, you know, it affects our, stimulates the sound waves that it releases in a certain pattern, fits our pattern built mind that looks for it i think i think all that and i think that 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 can be an incredibly negative view but i also think it's freeing because you know it things matter because we all make them matter and you have to have other people to make them matter and that's what i i think it does but i mean even laughter what's laughter it's sort of a it's a stress release it's some you know evolutionary theory thinks it's a way of signaling to the group that everything's okay that the danger's gone you know all these things it it probably sadly is i'd like to say there's some lovely big meaning behind it and there's a higher soul and all this sort of stuff but i just i just can't whenever i read about it or drill into it i just can't i can't find it are you a person who looks for any particular meaning in your life do you define your life by some sort of you know just you know meaning of self not really no i mean it's, no. i'm not i i think there's a, a a moral i do believe that there's a moral thing and i don't think that i think that actually comes more from genetics than anything else and you know empathy and various things i do i do think of you know when you're doing wrong i don't think there's that many people outside of probably sociopaths that we kind of know and we go off the path occasionally uh, the sociopaths go to banking and, and the rest of us try and <laughs> build a society in the wreckage, you know. But, yeah, I, I, I think it's there's an inbuilt thing to us about looking after each other and empathy and all these things. But I don't think, I mean, the older I get, the realise the, the less I know and the less I know what I'm doing. Uh, you know, it's it's, I believe more and more that you've got to go through things to actually understand them. So I'm a bit, you know, that's probably the one thing life and age has taught me. So a bit more under, I'm probably more empathetic as I've gone through life um, because I've gone through, you know, having kids or getting divorced and stuff. And I suddenly realised 
you have to kind of go through them to understand them, you know, and it's why I look at other things like racism and go, I've tried to have empathy in that area and I try and learn about it, but I increasingly think I'll never really understand it fully, you know. I, I can have try – the best you can be is try to understand it. And I, so I think as I get older, you, you know, you, you kind of – get that level of knowing that life's a bit more complicated and a bit harder. Um, but then I also think it means nothing and that's very freeing thought at the end. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that idea though, that it means nothing, you, like you said, you're still guided by some sort of morality and principle and empathy yeah. for others. Like even that general understanding, which I think is very helpful, which is sometimes it's helpful enough to understand that you could never fully understand it. That might be a good place to start. Don't speak as if you've walked a mile in someone's shoes because even if you have walked a mile in their shoes, a mile isn't enough to give you the full experience of walking an entire lifetime yeah. in their shoes. I just think by the idea, though, that there's no bigger picture, that there's no bigger meaning to life is to me actually it makes me think, well, you can react one or two ways. You can not care and therefore do whatever you want, you know. It doesn't matter. Mm. Or you can take it to go, what only matters is what's here. Because there isn't any bigger picture. It's what we create amongst ourselves. It's what you. It's what matters to you, what connects to you. You know, I, I think that is all that mattered. The idea that there's some magical future coming up for me or a heaven or a hell or a, you know, nirvana or anything like that. You know that's that's a bit like me saying, as I always do. Oh well, I'll I'll go to the gym tomorrow. You know, it, it, it's it it's kicking the can down the road. Huh? You know, hope there might not be a tomorrow. So, you know, I do think that the fact that I don't look at thinking that there's no greater purpose as a, as necessarily a depressing or negative view. Has lock has being in lockdown because you're in <laughs> Melbourne, right? Yeah. So being in Melbourne during like Australia's harshest lockdown situation yeah. has has been in the middle of, you know, the current world circumstance, the complete, you know, like stopping of everything that we knew to be how it was and then our gradual rebuilding of things either back to what they were or in a new direction. Mm. Has it changed anything in your mind having lived in the middle of that experience? The only thing that I... The thing that I think it's reinforced is all that really matters is connecting with other people, and that we are part. We are. I've always thought this. We are, you know, group social animals. Uh, we need other people. We need the connection. We need standing in that group for whatever that is. <coughs> um, you know. So I think that more and more, not having that. I mean, I went. I've gone like five months or something without. Um, seeing another adult, you know, so, you know, which, you know, it's a huge impact, this, what's going on down here to people. I mean, a lot of it's intense boredom. So when not people say, you know, must be really tough, you're kind of cognizant of the fact that no one's shooting at me. I've got food in the kitchen, like, but the intensity of the boredom is, is something else, but also a sense that I think humans need to move around, um, to form new memories and experiences and just being stuck in the one place um, with a 5K radius around you. And even then, you know, it's, you're not going to go to a lot of places because they're not open. Or it, it's, 
it's a real, really tough um, experience for people. Like those two things of not moving around, not having connection with people. And the rest I've realised it doesn't really matter. You can have all the the best things in the world or all, all of Netflix and all that, and that's nice, but you can't do that 24-7. It's just, you know, it's, it's just too hard. So I'm just looking forward to getting out and seeing people again, basically. That's all I really care about. Uh, how much do you think that your personality, particularly comedically, has been shaped by the fortunes of the team that you support the most? So being a <laughs> Melbourne Demons fan... I always think, so when Charlie and I started Two Guys, One Cup, the reason it's called Two Guys, One Cup is because I'm a Bulldogs fan, he's a Saints fan. We started in 2016. The idea was that both of our teams, we were bonded together by the t- yeah. the idea that both of our teams had only won the premiership once each in the yeah. 100 years they'd each been well, in the competition. And, of course, well, the, the Bulldogs did win in 2016, which changed it a little bit for me. But does it does it influence your perspective you have comedically? Oh, I mean, it does because I write so much about footy, you know. You, you, it, it's, it, and it does my life, you know. It's just whatever could go wrong will go wrong. They haven't won a premiership since 1964 and they've managed to just be abysmal pretty much all that time. You know, anything that can go wrong basically will go wrong with Melbourne. And, you know, so there is that element where, yeah, comedically it's, it does come at it you know, I, I, I think in some ways, though, I don't know whether it affects me or I'm already wired that way about other things that I don't do comedy on, but about politics and all this sort of stuff, you know. There's a lot of, you know, I think I've got inside me, and same from with footy, you know, I've got a lot of anger. It comes out as humour. But, you know, the injustice and the stupidity and, like, a lot of people talk about, you know, hate injustice, but, I mean, I also just hate stupidity. Having worked in the corporate world and all the wasted time and, you know, it's, you know, justice sort of often comes out of stupidity. You know, so you realise how much of the world we do is just actually stupid. If you could actually, no one actually thinks it's done well. But we've all kind of, we're here now, you know. We've, you know, I remember... Bill Shorten saying on one of his election campaigns that if it was up to him, there would be no funding for private schools, but we're here now and you can't change it. And I think a lot of political problems are in that basket where everyone goes, well, yeah, it's a terrible system, whatever the system is, but we're here now. It's too hard to change it. There's too many, you know. And So you, you, I, I find it hard to not kind of go through the life not a bit frustrated at how it operates, but humans your way of not turning into the bitter person that's just yelling at people all the time. So if if I had a magic wand and I could change one thing about the world, and only one, everyone gets one thing, but you can change anything <laughs> anything about the world, what 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 would you immediately think like needs massive overhaul? I think the I think the major thing that needs to be overhauled is actually the access of uh lobbying and elites to government and I know I just think that's at the core of so many of our global and you know having seen it up close it's it's a huge problem that that massively deforms democracy and where we want to go and even things that people say oh what about the media and Facebook and all this and but they're all kind of outcomes of that because they are influences of this and things like that so you know, having done some work in politics and stuff in the past, that the, the the way it's compromised by powerful groups is is kind of amazing, and I think it it 
it's the greatest threat we have to, you know, what we've built up. I mean, you read history, and that's one thing I love about reading history is one history doesn't care about what you think. It just these things happened. And we've been here before. I've heard you say before we're in precedented times, and it's absolutely true. We're in precedented times in terms of pandemic, and we're in precedented times in terms of a madman being in charge of a country, and we're in precedented times in terms of economic, uh, you know, disparity. Um, And they all lead to one thing, which is you need a good revolution to sort it all out and reset it. And, you know, it's... We think in tiny time frames, humans. We think in sort of 10, 15 years. But really, you know, 200, 300 years in human history is not long. And, uh, you know, I look at America now and people say, do you think there'll be a civil war or they'll break off? And I say, yeah, I, I do. But I don't think it's going to be in five years or 50. But I can't see America lasting in three, another 300 years. You know. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be hard to write this wobble. The wobble the wobble has already started. It's gonna be hard yeah. to get it on back back on track now. So I I have another magic wand. And this one is for personal use. I can oh, give you me. any any skill in the world. Selfishly. Yeah. You don't have to use it for altruistic reasons. You can Oh good. Oh, well, I wouldn't, but But it's very much for you. You can uh you don't have to do your ten thousand hours, you just immediately have this skill. What would the skill that you most desire to have? Uh, I've always said this, I'd love to be able to sing, like, really well. I look at people who can sing and think, that must be, it looks physically fun to do. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, even singing, I'm a terrible singer, so but even singing in the shower feels good. But if you could sing and that feels that good, but then others in the room are going, <laughs> wow, like... I'm enjoying this too. It's not just you. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of have always thought that that must be really nice. That must be a, like to have that sort of, you know, which fun. I've never had a desire to really be big at sport. It's funny that I don't say that being a big sport mm. fan. I, I think, you know, but to be able to sing or something like that would be, I think, absolutely amazing. I mean, but... My fallback before I did all this is I would have said comedy. So I kind of feel like, you know, I've kind of lucked out by changing my career very midstream because, you know, there's something, isn't there, about being up on stage with that crowd in front of you and it going well which because you know it can't. And it doesn't matter if you're the best comedian in the world. The, the safety... There's, there's always that chance of it going badly. You can have the same material that has always killed. You could have, you could have done it for fifty years, and isn't there though? There's, you could never take away that until you get in front of a crowd. You don't uh, like if you're a great singer and you're not ill or something, or you're a great guitarist. You can sit down with one person, and I could play your guitar, and you go, "You're an amazing guitarist." And then I just get up on stage and do it in front of people and people go, you're amazing guitarists. But if I sat in front of you and go, this is my comedy act and it's just <laughs> one-on-one, you can't fully say to me, you're an amazing comedian. You go, yeah, I think there's some funny stuff there. Yeah. But you, you have to get in front of that crowd. And I think that's why I haven't done a lot of Zoom gigs because I think stand-up, your instrument is the audience. Like, that's what you're playing. And so to do a Zoom gig without that, it's a bit like saying Jimi Hendrix, once you did a Zoom call but you can't bring your guitar, it's like, 
you know, even that if it's going badly, you're getting some re- or the, you're getting people go oh, like you know, all that to me is really what you're doing, and I think that's a, a lot of fun. So that's my sort of fallback after basically not being able to sing a lick. I, I love it? what you say though about the audience because I, I've been thinking about that a lot. Obviously, now that the audiences have gone away. The show is written. The show exists. I could go out on this balcony and do the show yeah. right now. But yeah. the show is nothing without the audience. The audience is the instrument you're playing. I've, I've said this to people before. I said, I've never really considered myself to be an amazing comedian. But what I do admit is that I have the capacity and ability to convince a thousand strangers in a room that I'm an amazing comedian. <laughs> like that, that I know. I don't, I don't necessarily think that I am amazing, but I know that I've done enough shows where the audience really seemed to be convinced that I was amazing. And I think that that's basically what it is. It's about being able to convince a whole bunch of strangers that you're good at your job. Well, that's life, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I, I did well in corporate world because I look like central casting for guy in meeting <laughs> you, know, you know if there was a credit at the end of the movies and it said guy me and people go yeah he, he's white and he's got glasses and he's like he's not skinny enough to be worrying he's got enough weight that he looks like he's lived an all right life I, like, I could literally be dumped into any boardroom in australia tomorrow and people wouldn't go why is he here like um you know they'd go oh he's yeah. the new guy you know and so I just knew all the time, like I was jumping, you know, <laughs> if there's a hundred criteria you've got to get in society to qualify for certain mm-hmm. things. I ticked off 80 of them before I spoke. You know, I, I sort of knew that. That So people say, how do you, and I used to say, people would say, have you got to be this? And I'd say, I look like a guy in meeting. Like, and they'd go, no, seriously. And i go, you'd be scared how much that is true in, you know, in life, that if you look the part and act the part, you know, because we're all frauds on some level, right? You know, we're all... A, a, even now when I sit down to write a tweet or a show or if I do a tweet and no one likes it, I, I the whole thing comes crashing down. I'm like, I've lo- you've lost it. You've officially lost it. It's it's never coming back. Final question. I have a time machine. Um, I can take you to any point in the future or the past, your own future or the past, the world's future or the past, but it has to be a round trip. I need the machine back. You don't need to go back and kill Hitler. I'm sending someone appropriate back to do that. Uh, so where, where would you like to go? Forward or back? Well, uh, well, one recency bias wants me to go back to the quarantine setup and uh, say, guys, this isn't going to work. Uh, if I could go back into I I, I do think sometimes like as as I get older I think I I more would like to go ahead in time Mm. you know like I have moments in my life that I think that was a really I mean and youth is great you know that that first time I remember I'd be tempted to say you know coming out of school and you're suddenly 18 you can go everywhere that was great and but I'm not a good at looking back in the past so I more worry about things I'm going to miss out on when I'm not here anymore. So I think, oh, what if we discover aliens on another planet or we get to Mars or we get to... I Increasingly now I'm thinking, gee, there's things like that I don't reckon I'm going to get to see, you know, that, that, that will happen in the next 200 years or something. So I increasingly have this sense as I get older of my own mortality and missing out on things. You know, I do, I do think of that more and more. That that's what I'd, you know, I've been watching Highlander a lot and I want to become immortal. 
Well, I just like the idea that you would be the person we could send to the future too, because you could just sneak into a bunch of meetings and everyone would expect that you'd still blend in. 200 years in the future, I reckon guy in meetings still looks like you. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it does seem to be going that slow, doesn't it? I'd, li- I'd like to get there and then go, oh my God, an incompetent white man from the past has arrived. <laughs> this is amazing. And, you know, there's everyone in there is actually there on merit and it's an amazing world, you know. Like, I'd love that, but I don't, I don't see it happening, but... God, it would be fun to go forward. I mean, but you'd want to go. You, you want to go somewhere that you want to. It's the things we're not going to see or not get the answers to, that is kind of what keeps me awake at night. I mean, the past probably wasn't as good as I remember it. Uh, the Titus O'Reilly. The book is called. Is it called Cheat? It's called Cheat: The Not So Subtle Art of Conning Your Way to Sporting Glory. So, and when is that out? All the November third. So it's my fourth book. So. You know, it's, okay. it's always good to actually get it finished. Well, you know what? We've got a couple of these up our sleeves and it's October the 7th. So what I might try to do is I'll put this out on the Monday morning uh, when the uh, book is coming out so that people can be hearing this. Oh, that'd be uh, great. Right, Thanks for that. Yeah, uh, right next to when the book comes out. Please go and check that out. Uh, mate, it has been an absolute pleasure to do this today. I, um, I really appreciate that you took the time. Thanks. It's been fun. 